0: Good morning. Okay, they're there. Good morning to you, wherever you are. Uh, My name is Nathan. If I've not had a chance to meet you, one of the pastors here at Restoration Church. So glad that you've joined us. Uh, It is our normal practice to take up books of the Bible and work right through them. Uh, But in the past uh, few weeks, and we'll have uh, one or two more weeks of this, we uh, have been taking a break from the book of Luke to consider the vision of Christianity. We want you to understand, we want in particular those that are considering following Christ to not only understand what we believe, but in particular, why we believe it. And we want you to see also what Jesus has to do with all of that. And so, for instance, three weeks ago we started this little mini-series by considering the question, what do Christians believe about humanity? And what we said was was that we as Christians believe that Christ, that Human beings, all human beings were created in the image of God. That makes them distinct or set apart from the rest of creation. They're created. Humanity is with this ability to know God. And that gives them a special responsibility to show God. Uh, And because of our sinful choices where we've rebelled against God, there's been this gap that explains the brokenness around us. And yet Christ, the second and greater Adam, he has come to redeem to adopt and to restore his people to the true humanity that God made in the beginning. And then last week we considered the question of the Bible. What do Christians believe about the Bible? And we said that we Christians believe that the Bible is God's good and authoritative word to orient us towards that true humanity. Uh, We trust the Bible. We believe that the Bible that we hold in our hands is reliable to us still today. And uh, we believe that that word is meant to free us into that humanity uh, because we trust it in part because Jesus trusted the Bible. So in the same way, we trust it because we trust Jesus. And so that brings us to our third question. Uh, This morning, we're answering the question, what do Christians believe about the church? I'm sure if you're not a Christian, you're very familiar with how Christians uh, make their practice go to church. And so uh, maybe you've gone to church and sort of walked away from the church. But this morning, we want you to understand what Christians believe about the church. And we find that in this sermon this morning, our notions of humanity and scripture all kind of come together. And uh, this morning, I'll have three points and one brief question at the end. And so first question, uh, most basic question. What is the church? What do Christians believe the church is? Well, the church in particular means that word means assembly. Or gathering what it means Uh, we as Christians believe that you can use that that word in two ways one of two ways Uh, one that could be universal church Uh, that is to say uh, sometimes called the invisible church the ones you can't see all of them because the universal church expresses what we believe to be all Christians across space and time so from John the Baptizer to John Chrysostom to John Calvin to Jody Kim all Christians everywhere uh, Across space and time. That's the universal church. So sometimes the Bible talks about the universal gathering which will be in heaven when we will all be together. Uh, But the second way, the more frequent way that the Bible talks about the church is the local church. That's this thing right here. The local church. Uh, It's the physical expression of the spiritual reality of God's people. That's what the local church is. It's a physical expression of that spiritual reality of the universal church. So if you believe that you are part of the universal church, the way that you express that is by gathering or by joining, assembling with other Christians in the local church. So this reveals to the world that you are a citizen of heaven because you have joined with a local church of people that are God's people. And we'll talk more about the local church when we get to Acts chapter 2. So kind of keep your finger there. We're going to come back to that after John 17. Uh, But we see, for instance, in Matthew 16, 18. Joey prayed for this earlier. Matthew 16, 18, that Jesus says he will build his church, his assembly. He will build his church and the gates of Hades, the gates of hell, won't prevail against it. And so what we find there is you'll notice that when Jesus prays or when he teaches about the advance of the church, it is just that. It's an advance. The nature of the church is to be offensive, not primarily defensive. Uh, Your parents probably put up fences, maybe when the house that you grew up in or gates to keep things out, right? That's what fences do. They keep things out. And so you'll notice in that verse, Jesus says that he would build his church. He would build his gathering, his assembly, and the gates of hell can't stop the church from breaking in. It's going to advance past those gates of hell. And so there, Jesus is tipping his hand into the pervasive nature of the church. As we will uh, consider more in a minute, as I said, the church is this notion of being offensive. It's on the advance. It spreads like yeast through dough. Or the church spreads like uh, light into a darkened world. No matter what kings and uh, machinations or even Satan tries to do, you cannot stop the advance of God's church. And so what we've learned is from the beginning of time in Scripture, God has always had a people set apart from the rest of the world. It started with Adam and Eve, and then it moved to Abraham and to the Israelites. And now, in the New Covenant, we see that Christ has come and His people is the church. His church, this New Covenant people. We are set apart from the world, and nothing can stop local churches from advancing and thriving. That brings us then to john 17 so we've considered what the church is what the church is it's a gathering it's the assembly of god's people but what's the church like what's the church supposed to be like what's the nature of the church if you could kind of smell the church what kind of aroma might the church have well that's what we learn about here that jesus prays for in john 17 here's my little phrase to kind of help us think about that what the aroma of the church is the aroma of the church is a colony of heaven and the country of earth. Colony of heaven and the country of earth. That's what she's supposed to be like. She's supposed to have this kind of beauty, this kind of quality of heaven out in front of time. Imperfectly, but it's supposed to have this kind of quality of heaven in the country of earth. And this is what we read about in John 17. This entire chapter in John 17 is Jesus' prayer. It's kind of the, think of it like the backstage pass to Jesus' prayer. We're listening to him pray to the Father, and there's a lot that we could observe, but we want to notice just a few things about the nature of the church. First off, take a look at verse 20 there in chapter 17. Uh, Notice that Jesus is not only praying for his disciples that are there with him, but look in verse 20 and notice that he's praying for all of the people that would believe in him through their work which is us today. He's praying for them too. And as he prays, Jesus prays against one thing, four, five things that lead to two things. He prays against one thing, prays four, five things that lead to two things, and that describes the nature of the church. So the first thing that he prays against there in verse 15, take a look at it, is he prays against the evil one to have his effects on the church. Verse 15, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. So friend, this reminds us, we're not crazy. Maybe we are a little crazy, but we, we, we trust that Satan is real because Jesus trusts that Satan is real. And Jesus trusts that, his, uh, that, uh, that Satan is powerful. And so do we. Satan hates the church. And the reason why Satan hates the church is because he knows how much Jesus loves the church. And so here Jesus tells us, he prays against uh, Satan trying to have an effect on the church. That tells us that the church has enemies. Most prominent of those, of course, is Satan. He prays against the evil. But he prays for five things. Look at verse 13. It's the first thing that he prays for. In terms of... Relating the nature of the church, Jesus prays that the church there would have the fullness of his joy fulfilled in themselves, he says. The fullness of the joy of Christ fulfilled in the church. So the church is the place of joy. Joy, to be clear, joy is different than happiness. Happiness comes and goes with the weather. We're happy to let Disney World be the happiest place on earth. Because it comes and goes, and it has to be shut down in times of coronavirus. But the church is different. The church has joy. Joy is something different. Joy is deep and abiding happiness. Joy is hope-filled contentment, no matter our circumstances. Because of our citizenship in heaven has been secured. Joy is hope-filled contentment, no matter our circumstances. Jesus is the fountain of joy. All joy ultimately comes from him, therefore, when he prays that his church would have his joy fulfilled in themselves in the church, he's asking for the fullness of hope-filled, happy contentment, to be present in the life of the church. Interesting, isn't it that the church is so uh, often refused or asked and referred to as the joy killer. But in fact, Jesus prays that the joy, that the church would be a joy filler. Jesus, friends, is after our joy. And notice that he doesn't want us just to have some joy. He wants to have the fullness of joy to be present here. This is why I I sometimes refer to the church as the place of pleasure. Because it's where you can go to be sure to find the joy of Christ. Church is where we can tap into the fullness of joy. The second thing he prays for in verse 17 is sanctification. Sanctification. The church is a joyful people. Church is a people being sanctified. Look at verse 17. He prays, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. You'll notice in verse 19, he prays for the same thing. So to be sanctified is to be made holy. To be made holy is to be set apart. Set apart. As as I said earlier, God has always had a people. Those people have always been set apart from the rest of the world. That's that holy people. And those people that were, are meant to be his holy people, they are meant to be distinct from the world. They're to be set apart from the world. They're not to be like the world. Not because of what they look like or because of how they dress, but because of who they are, but because of whose they are, because of where their treasure lies. The treasure, Our treasure lies in Christ And so therefore, because our treasure is Christ, that has us to relate to the world uh, differently than the rest of the world. Has us to value things differently. Look again at verse 16. Jesus' church is in the world, but not of the world. He means that as the grace of God works through the word of God to make the people of God, we that are the church, become of him or from him which is to say we are not of this world, which is to say, in other words, we are of heaven. We've been born again. It's what we're going back to two weeks ago. We are a new creation. Now our home is heaven. It's not here. So we're in the world, but we're not of the world. We're sanctified. And that, friend, is where I get that language of being a colony of heaven in the country of earth. When a Christian turns from sin and trusts in Christ alone to save them, They gather together with other Christians so as to be sanctified by the word of God. And as that word washes over us, his people, when we gather here on Sunday, in this moment even, we then let that water work on us. It sanctifies us. And then we scatter throughout the rest of the week. The church does. The people do. And we are meditating, reading, thinking about the word then. And it's continuing to sanctify us. And as that word sanctifies us, cleanses us, purifies us, we begin to live differently. We begin to love differently by its refining fires. We begin to know the more, the joy of Christ, the more we give ourselves to the word of Christ. You remember last week how we abide in the word of Christ and what does that do? It frees us to be that true humanity. And so the church is a people of joy being sanctified. And then the third thing that Jesus prays for. You can see it in verse 21, 22, and 23. So this is prominent. 21, 22, and 23, Jesus prays that the church would be one, be one. Look at verse 21, that they may be one. The church is a people of joy, being sanctified, and a people that are one, meaning that we are one in Christ, unified in Christ. The church is unified in Jesus. They're not, they're not unified in Nathan we are not unified in Restoration Church in and of itself. We're unified in Christ. So we're one in Christ. Either we are, even if we are Jew or Gentile or male or female or black or white or slave or free or Republican or Democrat or American or Bulgarian, we are one in Christ. The Bible even teaches that marriage is meant to be a kind of picture of Christ in his relationship to the church. And so as a man and woman come together in marriage, they become one physically, they become one emotionally and spiritually. And that picture of marriage is meant to illustrate the way that the church is. We've been married to Jesus, and we are one with Him. And therefore, we are one with each other, the church is. One with each other. Another metaphor that the Bible uses to describe the church in its oneness is the human body. So it says that as the body has many parts, but is itself one body, so the church has many parts, many people, that is. But we are one body of Christ. Restoration Church has 146 members, but we are one local church, one body of Christ. And the reason why we can be one, friend, is because the most important thing about us as Christians is the same. The most important thing about our identity is the same. Our identity is in Christ, for Christ. Our citizenship is with him in heaven. And therefore, we are able to reflect that oneness by overcoming anything that will otherwise divide us. That's why that word university is best used on the church. University, unification amongst a diversity of people. We are a unified people though we have diverse backgrounds. And this, you should know, friend, is accomplished. This oneness is accomplished by grace. Take, if you were to take a look around, particularly, you spend five minutes with, with me, you'll see we have all different kinds of backgrounds, but it's not because we achieved some oneness because of our good works or because of our intellectual accusi- uh, acquisition. No. We're one because of the grace of God that made us by himself that's the only entity the church is unique from the rest of the world because of that fact every single entity on planet earth is able to be a thing because they have made themselves worthy to be part of that entity but the church is unique because it is becomes one because of its oneness because of the grace of christ that makes them one nothing of ourselves now, I realize, though, that when I say that, some of you are thinking about that quote from Martin Luther King Jr. Or, Nathan, if it's so one, why is it the American week is so divided on, on Sunday mornings? That's a good question. we will come back to that just briefly at the end. But for now, it's important that you see, friend, the design of Christ for His church. It's, it's to be a people that are uh, joyful in Christ, people that are being sanctified by the Word, so people that are one in Christ, that are unified And fourthly, it's a people of glory. People of glory. Okay, verse 22. The glory that you have given me, he says, I have given to them. When Jesus says that he gives his church glory, he means to tell us that he gives us his character. And another passage in Scripture says of Christ, uh, in Hebrews 1, that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, The exact imprint of his nature. Meaning when we see the life and ministry of Christ, we are seeing God in the flesh. We're seeing what he's like. So in a similar way, Jesus gives the church his glory. That is to say, he gives gives us his character as his word, again, sanctifies us. In other words, there should be a kind of weight to the church. We're not light and fluffy popcorns and slushies. Right? There's a kind of weight because we're being sanctified by the character of God, the glory of God. The church is a people of joy, sanctification, oneness, glory. And fifth thing he prays for that the church is, is we are a people of love, of love. Look at verse 26. What may be, in my estimation, the most amazing verse in the entire Bible. Jesus prays, I made known to them your name. And I will continue to make it known. Why, Jesus? That that the love with which you, the Father, have loved me may be in them. And I in them. (laughs) I have never gotten over that verse. Jesus means, here, what Jesus is saying, what Scripture teaches is that God is love. Love is not God. God is love. Which means love comes from God. Just as God is the fountain of joy, uh, uh, God is the fountain of love. And here Jesus prays, not just that the Father would give some trickle of love to his people. No, no. Jesus prays, the same flow of love from eternity, from the father to the son, that same flow go to his people, the church. That's amazing. We will learn more about what Christians believe about love as Owen Be- preached to us about it, but here, friend, it's important to see that love comes from God and the fountainhead of love goes from the Father to the Son. That then goes, Jesus prays, to the church that we would be a people of love. The church should be a place where love can be found more than anywhere else. And of course, for you to understand that, you've got to know what love means. But Jesus, he says in essence, he's going to build the church. Nothing can stop its advance. Local church is going to be planted all over. Nothing can stop it. What is the church? It's a gathering of God's people. He prays against the evil one from influencing it. It's a gathering of God to enjoy the fullness of God's joy. It's a sanctification of God's word. It's the place where we enjoy the oneness of God, the glory of God, and the love of God. That's what the church is to be like. And what comes after John 17? If you have Bibles, you look down there, maybe scroll down a little bit. You'll see in the next chapter, John 18. Look at the superscript there. It says betrayal and arrest of Jesus. So Jesus prays for all of this stuff, and what comes next in the chapter is Jesus's accomplishment of all of it. Accomplishment. So the testament, friends, just the entire Old Testament and our own experience testifies to the fact that no matter how hard all of us try, in the Old Testament we see no matter how even good gifts God gives His people. We still cannot accomplish this community of joy and glory and love and oneness. No matter how hard we try, we can't do it. And yet God in the person and work of his son, what does he do? But he comes in the form of his son. Jesus comes to accomplish it, not just to make it possible, but to accomplish it. And this, of course, is absolutely positively amazing. When we look in uh, the person and the work of Christ, in particular in the cross, there we see the preeminent act of love goes to then accomplish this beautiful community for his people. And so friends, what humanity has never been able to accomplish, what it cannot accomplish, God accomplishes in Christ at the cross. He not only makes a community like this possible, he does accomplishment. By Jesus' atoning death, wherein he pays for the sin that we deserve to pay for ourselves. Jesus sheds his blood on the cross. And that blood, that atoning righteous blood that never sinned, is able to atone, make the payment for our sin. And his resurrection, friend, three days later, this is why Christians, this is so important. His resurrection reveals that that price has indeed been paid. And so therefore, because of that payment, therefore, he accomplishes. Uh, the overcoming of sin and death, the thing that divides us. And then we get that oneness. We get the righteousness of Christ in us. And then after that resurrection, what we find happen is so important next. The next thing that comes is Jesus, 40 days later, ascends to the Father. And as soon as he ascends to the Father, he sends the Spirit to his people. And so now, God's uh, Spirit lives inside of the hearts of those that repent and believe on Christ. And his atoning sacrifice. Sacrifice and resurrection now the spirit dwells within us. It's no longer dwelling in a building It's in his people because jesus accomplished that unity. It's now able to take part in his people That leads us next to what the church then does. What does it look like then since he's accomplished it? What does it look like to do all of this? We've said that it's a gathering we've It's marked by all of these things, but what does it actually physically look like? How do we know it's happening? What does the church do? Well, flip over to Acts chapter 2. We see all of this in real action, real time action. Acts chapter 2. Take a look uh, at the very beginning of Acts chapter 2. You'll notice there that Peter and the other apostles there, they receive the Spirit. Exactly what I just said. Jesus goes to the Father. Father then sends the Spirit. Spirit takes up residence inside of his people. That's now that's Acts 2, 1 to 12. And then after that, we see in Acts 2, 14 to 36, we should expect something. We should expect preaching. That's what we see. Acts 2, 14 to 36, Peter is preaching the word. You guys remember what, what, uh, what Jesus prayed? They would be set apart, sanctified how? Do you all remember? By the word. That's what he said, and that's what we see. Peter preaches the word, and what he does in essence from 14 to 36 is just basically say, you guys know that Old Testament? All of it is fulfilled in Jesus. All in him. He connects the Old Testament to Christ and his gospel. He preaches the same gospel I just preached to you. Death resurrection of Christ for sinners. And then look at the response in verse 37. This is how you, friend, need to respond if you are apart from Christ. If you're listening to all this going, I need that. This is how you respond to the gospel. Verse 37, Peter preaches, spirits in him, he preaches the word, and we see, verse 37, cut to the heart, not just the mind, to the heart. They said, what shall we do? Verse 38, Peter responds, repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You will be sanctified. You'll be made one with God's people in Christ. Repentance, friend, means to turn away from sin. It's to have sorrow for sin and turn from it and turn to Christ in faith to trust your salvation to him. You recognize I can't save myself, I trust him to save me, and then Jesus forgives that sin at the cross. Baptism is a picture of that reality. Baptism itself doesn't save you, Baptism is picturing the fact that you've repented and believed on Christ. It's picturing it all. Baptism is a picture of death to self and life to Christ. And so when we read there in verse 41, look at verse 41. So those who received his word, that is those that were made holy, they were baptized. Who was baptized? The people that received the word. Those who received the word were baptized and were added that day about 3,000 souls. Note that word added, circle that word added. Four things that we see there. We see repentance for sin, sorrow for sin, turning away from sin. Two, receive the word that's turning to Christ in faith. Three, they were then, after that, baptized. And then fourth, don't lose sight of this, they were added to the membership of the church. They were added to something. They were added to the church. And then we get this picture of the colony of heaven and the country of earth. We see what they do more so. Look at verse 42. And this church is describing the church now. What do they do? What what is this community of love and joy and all this? What are they doing? After they're baptized, they get added into the membership. And then we get a description, 42. And they devoted themselves four things. To the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. God's people are a devoted people. We are not to be a flippant people. Like we're seeing, you know, I'm sort of kind of interested in the prayers. Now they were devoted, it says. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That's the faithful teaching of the word. Devoted themselves to teaching. And secondly, to the fellowship. Right, fellowship, that's that word coin in the you've probably heard it before. Fellowship is to be devoted to an intimate relationship with each other in the Word that binds us all together. All right That's what's going on. that kind of joy, joy, glory, love of Christ, all that we're, 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 we're fellowshipping in that. And then the third thing it says, they were devoted to the breaking of bread. That's referencing the Lord's Supper. So you've probably seen Christians take the Lord's Supper before. I'm sure that's kind of familiar to you. Uh, this is where Christians remember, they look back in the Lord's Supper, and they remember the body of Christ and the blood of Christ that purchased their salvation, their oneness. That's what that means. They look back in the Lord's Supper, they remember the body and the blood of Christ, and then secondly in the Lord's Supper, they look forward, this is important, this is, they look forward in the Lord's Supper to having that meal with Jesus in heaven. That's what the Lord's Supper's doing. And then it says, and the prayers. They devoted themselves to prayer. So. Christ purchased us access to God the Father so we can now pray, we can fellowship with him, commune with him in prayer. And so the church is not only a people devoted to teaching, not only devoted to uh, the breaking of bread, to fellowship, but it's also devoted to prayer together. And then look at verse 43 to 47. I'm not going to read it, but you can see there, it talks about what happens when all of this is happening. You see sanctification in action. Note in verse 44, that all who believe were together, it says, and all things in common. There's that oneness that Jesus prayed for. They had all things in common. Verse 45 to 46 talks about the love Jesus prayed for them. Remember that? He prayed that they would love. Well, 45 and 46, you see it. They're taking care of each other such that, you know, whatever. Let's say Dan Savicka's car breaks down. Well, we figure out a way to take care of Dan Savicka's. That's what they say. That's what they do. They're taking care of each other's, and uh, and they eating with other. They're having meals with each other. This is before the coronavirus, obviously. <laughs> they're eating with each other, taking care of each other. And then notice in verse, in wonders and signs are being done by the apostles amidst them. And look at verse forty-six. They are gathering together regularly to do all of this. This is why Christians gather on the first day of the week. One, because Jesus rose on a Sunday. But we find in Scripture that they're regularly gathering. Because that's what, remember, what makes up a church. It's a gathering. And so here's the technical definition of the church. You ready? So, friend, you're probably listening to this. This is the part that's not very inspiring, but it's helpful to you to know what it is, what the church is. How's a church different than, say, a Bible study? Here it is. We, re- we see it all right there in Acts 2 42 to 47. The yeah. Local church is the regular gathering of Christians to hear the gospel, see the gospel, and protect the gospel. It's the regular gathering of Christians to hear the preaching and teaching of the gospel. To see the gospel in the ordinances of baptism and Lord's Supper. And then to protect the gospel. That's in membership and discipline. Now you're probably going, what in the world is that all about? Membership and discipline, protecting? What is that? Well, the protection of the gospel is the need to bind and loose the people that are actually Christians. As opposed to those that just take their name. One of the reasons there's so much hypocrisy, which we'll consider in a moment, is because churches have not been doing this. But God gives this ability to protect the gospel, protect the people by binding and loosing people that actually are Christians. Here in this passage, we not just learn about the church's joy and sanctification, oneness, glory, and love. We see it happening. And the rest of the book of Acts, friend, it's fascinating to read. I would encourage you to read it. Read through the book of Acts and all Acts is doing, well not all, but most of what Acts is doing uh, for the rest of the book is testifying to Jesus' promise in Matthew 16. Notice all this stuff comes at them and nothing can ever stop the advance of the church. That's what Acts is doing. This is what the church is, friend. It's a colony of heaven in the country of earth. It's the gathering of God's people to hear the word, to be sanctified and oriented to our heavenly home. And that is where the one of the two things that this leads us to remember i said against one thing four or five thing leads to two things this gathering orients us to something one namely it orients us orients us to being with jesus if you look back at john 17 jesus that his people his church would be with him i love that he wants us to be with him so you might think jesus doesn't like me no he wants you, Christian, to be with him. Be with him. We believe, friends, that the gathering of the church is a foretaste of a coming reality. Where we will finally be together with our great treasure, Christ the Lord. We will eat with him in that great banquet table. In the fullness of our humanity. in right? Restored bodies on a restored earth. Worshiping a resurrected and restored Savior. That's where all of this is leading us to. It's reminding us, this little gathering, it may seem insignificant in the eyes of the world, but this little gathering is pointing to our time when we will gather together with Jesus and enjoy him together as one at that great banquet table. But that's not the only thing that the church leads us to, to think about being with him. The second thing uh, that it also do is the gathering of the church leads us to be reminded to go out and scatter and make disciples of Jesus. The church gathers on Sunday, as we said. We're divine by our gathering. But also, we scatter to make Christ known so that other people can get in this thing. We're not trying to keep this to ourselves. We want all of you. We want you, friend. The whole point was why we set up a sermon series for a month to, to address you, the, the person that needs Christ, is so that you'll get in on this love, this joy, this peace. Look at verse, Acts chapter 2, verse 47. And the Lord added to their number, that's the church, added to the church day by day who were being saved. There's the mission of God's people to come and bring folks in. And then in John 17, Jesus prays, as you, Father, sent me into the world, so, he says, I have sent them, there's the church, into the world. And Jesus goes on to pray in John 17 that what Christ has accomplished and in his people, the church, might be done in order that the world would know that you sent me. So he wants to work in us so that we would go out into the world that the world would know that the Father sent the Son to accomplish salvation. So we're sent. In other words, the gathering of the church to sit under the Word, the ordinances, the prayers, compels us, friend, to people like you. It compels us, it sends us that are part of the church to go out and bring others in that you would be part of the colony of heaven and the country of earth. In other words, we go out, part of our calling as the church is to call the lost to be found. We do that on Sundays as we're doing right now. We also do that primarily throughout the week as we scatter, as the church scatters. And so, friend, you should know that our inviting you to follow Jesus is fulfilling which we believe Christ has given us to welcome the sinner and to make him saints, to bring him in to God's people that they would know and enjoy god forever this is our mission given to us by our beloved master who we love and laid his life down for us we want you to know this peace this joy this life this healing this forgiveness so we are led to this gathering leads us to be reminded of our gathering with him and it leads us to be reminded to go out as sent ones and call others in but i realize i'm going to finish up here when I say all of this about a people of joy and love and glory and all this and being sent, I realize that when I say this, you have one, you have many questions about the church, but probably one in particular. Nathan, what's the deal with all the hypocrisy? I mean, Nathan, you talk so much about this joy and peace and oneness. What about all the hypocrisy? I mean, if the church is supposed to be this community of joy and sanctification of oneness and glory and love, why is the history of the church so full of the opposite? I realize, friends, that for some of you, that question is more than the abstract. You've experienced deeply divisive and sinful members' meetings or churches. You've seen or experienced the abuse of money, the abuse of power, the abuse of women, the abuse of children. And what about things like says, Nathan? Or especially, what about the history of the church as it relates to slavery or racial prejudice? thinking about that a lot these days. How is it those things accord, coordinated with this colony of heaven and the country of earth? Well, friend, I can't possibly answer all of those questions in a soundbite. I'm not going to insult you by trying to give you one little brief soundbite to answer all those questions. I can't do that. Nor am I going to try to do that with just a soundbite. Those questions are warranted, and those questions need to be answered because to deny them is to deny the reality of these things that we see happen in church history. As a pastor, I can tell you, it seems like every fifth member of our church is on its last leg of trusting pastors and churches because they've been so burned in times past. So again, there's no soundbite that I can offer you that can satisfy all this. So I welcome your questions. Contact me. Go to our website, contact me. We'll talk about it. But let me just say this in conclusion. Use one aspect of hypocrisy in the church slavery and racial prejudice. Friend, you should know this doesn't satisfy all your answers, but all your questions, but you should know, friend, that it was the teaching and the fellowship of the church that fueled the likes of Thomas Clarkson, of Olata Equiano, of Hannah Moore, and William Wilberforce to take down the slave trade. It was their time in the church that fueled them. To take those monstrous things down. You should know friend. That it was Martin Luther King. And John Perkins. And Rosa Parks. It was their teaching. Fellowship in the church. That drove them. And gave them a community. To do what they did. It was the church that drove them in that. And it's been my experience. While it's just mine. It's not everyone's experience. But it has been my experience. That healthy and humble leaders. With healthy doctrine healthy and humble practices with the aim, listen, of treasuring Christ together. Not to get really big and famous. No, with the aim of just trying to treasure Christ together. It's been my experience that those kinds of churches have, have done some of the best work at seeing healing amongst black and brown people and amongst reconciliation, peace, even between uh, ethnic harmony. It's Been the church, I've seen this up front and close and personal. It's done some of the best work it's true that the church has harbored and is harboring and has hated in more ways than it can count. But it is also true, friend, that the Church of Christ has provided some of the most, play, most the best places of healing and reconciliation. And the ones that are abiding in His word, that as Scripture teaches us, that are doing justice, loving mercy, walking humbly with their God. Those churches, friend, they do exist. Believe it or not, they do exist. And they have done some of the best work the world has ever known to bring about that ethnic harmony amongst many other things. You just don't hear about them much because the outlets are not that interested in those kinds of stories. But the reality is they are voluminous. I've seen them, I've experienced them. I feel like imperfectly I lead one. But rest assured, friend, the church of Christ has been a colony of heaven and the country of earth for those of heaven. Not just the ones that say they are of heaven. Think about civil rights leader John Perkins. The big deal, quote, we, the big deal is we think power is in us individually, but the reality is, he says, the church is in us collectively. He says, it is in the church, John Perkins. And so the question for you then, friend, is are you part of that church? Have you repented of your sin, trusted in Christ for salvation, for forgiveness, for healing? between you and the Father. Say, do you, do you, as Jesus prayed, do you desire to be with him? You want to be with him? Is heaven your home? Or friend, are you trying so hard to make this your home? So friend, I'm pleading with you today to come and join the church of Christ pleading with you today to come and be part of a community of joy and sanctification of oneness and glory and love. We illustrate it imperfectly. We are striving towards that end and we desire you, friend, to be part of it as you turn from sin and trust in Christ to save you and be part of this, albeit imperfect, yet beautiful people out in front of time, this colony of heaven in the country of earth. Will you trust Jesus? The Lord, as he teaches, is knocking. Will you answer Or will you keep him outside? Our hope is that you would turn from sin and trust him. And it's a good reminder for those of us in Christ that are part of the church that we need to constantly be repenting and believing ourselves. Enjoying the fellowship of Christ and of one another. May we give ourselves to that work and I would love to then pray now, friend, for you that are considering following Jesus. Let me pray for us. Lord God Almighty, we do thank you for the church. We thank you, Jesus, for how you prayed for the church, how you died for the church, how you live for the church. We confess, God, that we illustrate so much of these things so imperfectly. But we thank you that there's more grace in you than there is sin in us. And God, I pray that more people would hear these words of yours, turn from sin, and would join the church, Would join. The colony of heaven in the country of joy, of sanctification, of oneness, of glory and love. Because they Oh God, help us to be a church that welcomes sinners, like you did, that we might be the saints that you have called us to be, that you might we might glory into all the earth, that more would know that you, Father, sent your Son to rescue us. We prayed in Jesus' name and for Jesus' glory.